If you're not in tech, you've probably never heard of enterprise software. But even if you're in tech, you probably don't fully understand enterprise software, which is why on today's Breaking Into Startups podcast, we're interviewing the VP of Worldwide Channel Sales, Ghazal Asif. Why are we interviewing her? Because we want to not just understand enterprise software, we want to understand another opaque piece of that, which is channel selling, but we also want to understand leadership. And Ghazal is a true leader. She is amazing. We don't just talk about business on a podcast. And I know on the podcast, we talk about how to break in, how the tech world works, how to level up culture, her role running like app app dynamics, women's like group and things like that. But we laugh. We, 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 we joke. We, we have a good time. Uh, so that you understand that it, it's not all about work. It is about skill development. But at the end of the day, why are we doing this? Why are we in this together? Um, and, and it's a, it's a great piece. Um, if you are inspired by her story, by Gazal's story, um, please um, like our community on Facebook, join the Breaking Stars community, introduce yourself, and let us know if you want to take the next step. We are happy to plug you in to App Dynamics. If you're ready, if you're not ready, we're happy to route you to the places to get the skills like always hired so you can become an SDR and level up. Or... If you have any other questions or tips or feedback about the episode, you want to leave a review, you can leave a review or send us an email. My my email is Ruben at BreakingStars.com. You could also hit Arthur Timor Patrick at BreakingStars.com. We out here in the Bay nationwide. We did 17 events all over the nation last year, so you can find us anywhere. Um, and so without further ado, let's break in. Growing up, we're told that in order to be successful, you need to be a banker, a doctor, or a lawyer. That's what the gatekeepers want you to think. But we're part of something bigger. We're part of a technological revolution. Either you're at the table or on the table. Get in the end. 10X. Yo, yo, yo. This is Ruben Harris. I'm here with the homies Arthur and Timor Meister. And this is the Breaking Stars podcast. Timor, can you please tell the people what we're doing today? Yeah, so tonight it's 6 p.m. on a Tuesday, and uh, we're coming to you live from AppDynamics headquarters in San Francisco. This is probably the first, or this is the first boardroom that we're recording from that actually has graffiti on the wall. Yeah, we love graffiti. Yeah, what does it say on the wall? It just says AppDynamics, and uh, we're going to include the picture in the show notes. Yeah, so shout out. Respect to the artist. Yeah. Yeah, so we're we're, we're here with Ghazal Asif, who is not only the most interesting person that we've interviewed on the podcast, she's a Scottish Pakistani living in San Francisco, but she has also been on the UK version of The Apprentice. She's worked at small startups. She's worked at large startups. For example, like Meraki that was acquired for $1.3 billion, AppDynamics that was acquired for $3.7 billion. She's international. She travels all over the world. She a, has a, a large family. She's one of four, has three sisters. I mean, she's great. So shout out to Ash Castleman for introducing us and connecting us to Ghazal. And uh, Ghazal, welcome. Wow, that was quite the introduction, Ruben. Like Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, no problem. Thank you for, for being here. So Arch and Timor are engineers. I moved out here to focus on sales. I mean, so even though I didn't focus on enterprise sales, I just started getting introduced to that. And I was exposed to something called channel mm-hmm. sales, which is what you focus on. You're the, you're the VP 
of worldwide channel sales at App Dynamics. That's and you've right. done it at Cisco Meraki and all these other places. So mm-hmm. for the people that don't know, hiring salespeople is expensive. Yes. And channel sales is kind of like outsourcing the cost of having your own sales operations. And a reseller allows you to rapidly expand your business without expanding your business operation. Is that right. accurate? Or can you kind of break down the difference between direct and indirect selling? Yeah. I mean, you, you, you nailed it, Ruben. You know, if you look at most tech companies, most tech companies go to market through some kind of sales channel. And what the channel, a reseller channel allows you to do is to scale you taking your product to market. It may be in existing markets where you just want to move faster and maybe in remote markets where you need local expertise. And a lot of the times a reseller or channel will provide that those local expertise and sort of feet on the street that would quite frankly cost you a lot of money to just continue to grow your sales organization that way. But in addition to that, a reseller can also bring a lot of additional skills, like deep technical skills. You know, you may have a certain number of sales engineers. And if you train your resellers up, they can multiply your capacity, can do proof of concepts if you do it right. So it really, really depends on, you know, your own sales, sales motion and your sales organization and where you're looking to scale. And these days, there's different types of channels and resellers that any organization, whether it's enterprise sales, selling there's hardware, whether it's software that you could turn to. Yeah, no, no, that that's really interesting. And, you know, on the podcast, we've obviously covered the, you know, SDR role, the sales development yeah. representative role, the account executive role, directors of sales, VPs of sales. But you're like the, this role is a little different. So yeah. you're in charge of the team. How's your team structured? It's not, there's not really entry level roles unless it's a large company. Can you kind of explain how your team is structured? Yeah, of course. So my team is structured and, you know, pretty typical fashion, same as most channel organizations where you will have a group of individual contributors. So channel managers in our case, in fact, we have a channel manager that is based in the Bay Area, Rebecca Javins. She's an shout absolute, out to Rebecca. Shout out to Rebecca, absolute <laughs> rock star. And then she and her peers, so there's eight of them in the US, uh-huh. um, will report to director or a first line manager. In our case, is Gartner Johnson, who is okay, also a rock star. Well. And he leads the Americas for us. And so in different regions, we have sort of folks that lead the engagement with partners, and then they will have a leader that will lead that region. So we're just about to hire a leader for Europe, Middle East and Africa, which is exciting. Got it. That, that's really interesting. And so, you know, we're going to segue into like kind of like what that day to day looks like in a yeah. second. But, you know, when you were at a smaller company like Meraki mm-hmm. before it was acquired, you know, how was that structured? Like, is it from what I understand, it's like a top AE starts thinking about channel sales or how does it work? So it really depends on who you speak to. Because if you speak to folks that have been in the channel for a long time, they're like, oh, no real excellent salesperson will ever go into the channel, which is total BS, by the way. I think what the channel provides, if you're in sales and you're really enjoying selling, what the channel will do is it increases um, the scope of your sales. So now instead of just selling to, you know, let's say an executive at a customer, you're now sitting down with executives within resellers and partners. Sometimes they're multi-billion dollar organizations and saying, how can we build a business plan together that we can grow your bottom line? We can grow your top line. You're also speaking to the marketing people within your resellers, asking them what kind of campaigns can you do? You're also engaging with the sales team and asking them like, what are trends that you're seeing within your customer base? And so what the channel for me personally, what it gave me 
is variety on looking at lots of different aspects of a business that you don't necessarily see when you're really tunnel focused on just the sale. So I think, you know, some of the the best people that I've worked with in the channel are also some of the the top sales folks, actually. There's a person at Meraki, actually, that that stands out. John Vaughn, his name is. And, you know, he came to Meraki and and top performer in his previous role and wanted to break into channels for those reasons that it really does help you grow your experience. And it sounds like you're able to access a lot more clients through resellers because they're kind of managing those relationships and it's a force multiplier for you as a channel manager, right? Right. So your audience a little bit of an example of what a channel, I guess, channel reseller is and then what um kind of what is the onboarding process for you as a channel manager like do you first pitch them and then onboard them and give them a little demo or how does that process typically work yeah so resellers we we've got a reseller actually one of our top resellers uh, they're based in the bay area a company called trace three and uh, they've been a partner of ours for a, a number of years now with Trace 3, I mean, the discussion started off because they really focus on emerging technologies. So mm-hmm. that's how the discussion started off. And over time, they've really invested in app dynamics. And typically speaking, when you're onboarding any kind of reseller, you as a vendor have to figure out where in that reseller's business do you fit in. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a networking product, how is your networking product any different to anything else that, they, that yeah. they're currently selling? And so you have to first understand your own value to a customer and, and also a partner. And then help the partners understand how they're going to make money from selling your product. Yeah. Because in the channel, you know, the competition is fierce. There's so many new startups trying to break into different resellers. So, you know, you're really understanding what your value to the channel is, is really, really important. And the onboarding process, it really depends on the reseller. I mean, it usually starts off with, you know, speaking to some execs, sitting down with them, understanding their business, understanding how you can add and drive value for them. And then there's a whole period of really enabling them. I mean, that's something which we're really, really focused at App Dynamics is we don't just want to say to a partner, here you go, sign this paper. Now, yeah, you're out your partner of App Dynamics, (laughs) go sell something. Instead, we want to onboard them. We really want to understand how we can drive value for them and more importantly, our customers. And what are the areas that we need to enable them on? And usually the areas are either fit fit into a technical bucket where we will enable sort of pre-sales and engineers. And the other area is is sales, where we'll enable their sales folks, help them understand how and where they, they should be pitching our product. Yeah. yeah. And uh, when it comes to these resellers, what would you say are some of the challenges working with them? Because on paper, it sounds great. Like yeah. as, a, as a channel manager, you just build out a partnership with all these different resellers and they just go out and do the work for you. But I'm sure there's some risks involved. What would you say are some of those risks if you're working with these, with these resellers? That's a great question. You know, one of the biggest challenges is mindshare because most resellers will work with dozens and sometimes hundreds of vendors. Mm. So what is it about you, your technology, your company, your sales engagement that makes you really stand out? And if you're a channel manager and you're covering, let's say, 10, 15 resellers at any given time, how can you win the mindshare of the sales reps that you're working with? And that's often not easy. And then you have the age old conflict of, you know, sales conflicts that you'll generally get involved in. For example, you know, you as a direct rep, you're working on a deal, you know, you get the channel involved at some point, then another partner hears about this deal, they try and register the deal somewhere and somewhere along the line, there's some conflict and channel managers generally are the sort of first line of sort of trying to deal with that. And in AppDynamics case, 
there sometimes can be a little bit of conflict, which we have, you know, we've completely removed now because we've reshaped our model. Because if you've got direct sales organization, sometimes the direct sellers will be like, why should we work with a partner even yeah. to begin with? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it sounds like these, these resellers really want to be experts in their market because yes. they have these valued relationships. So they want to always be aware of the new things, the hottest things that are coming and, up. And they want to like own the relationship and lead yeah. it, right? So a lot of times you'll have your own sales process and every vendor has to think through this. You'll have your own sales process and your own go-to-market. That's what makes you really successful. Now you bring in a partner and you're saying to the partner, hey, Mr. Partner, you're already a very successful business, but here's how we go to market. Can you adopt our go-to-market motion? And most yeah. partners can't and why should they? Yeah. So then it's about working out as a channel manager, how can you take the best of your sales process, but make it easy for the channel to adopt that process. Because yeah. otherwise, you know, partners always want to lead the engagement. As a sales rep for a company, you're a bit of a control freak. You want to lead that engagement. Yeah. So there has to be like a balance somewhere yeah. where you trust each other to almost co-lead together. Yeah. And going back to Timo's questions about the, um, the risks, right? Mm. So you know, a lot of companies measure things off of ARR, right? right? Average average recurring revenue for the people that don't know. And so you're kind of like betting on the reseller to like help you hit your numbers. Yeah. How do you mitigate that risk? How do you track it? Is it committed versus collected? Or how do you think about, you know, managing that from a revenue perspective? Like obviously as a VP, you're owning yes. a, the number, right? Yeah. So. Yeah. I think ultimately this comes down to what you expect from your channel yeah. and, and what you expect from your partnerships. And, you know, we are very lucky that, you know, our strategic partners have committed to driving a certain number. Yeah. And the way that we can have ownership over that number is that our sales team gets involved in every single deal. Yeah. And that's actually, it's part because, you know, we, we want to lead that engagement. We want to provide our expertise to the customer. But on top of that, you know, we also want to provide an extended sales team for the resellers as well, yeah. because as a reseller rep, you're thinking about, you know, lots of different technologies, lots of different architectures, lots mm -hmm. of different vendors. And therefore you might not be an expert in AppD. Mm -hmm. So we're saying to our resellers is you don't have to be an expert in AppD on the sales side. Mm -hmm. Here's a few things you can do to make introductions to, you know, potential customers yeah. and we'll work on it together. Yeah. You know? Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, um, you know, we know that at least based off of the pre-chat that we had, it's not a typical activity-driven type of thing. Like from a prospecting perspective, you tend to work with like a, a group of partners. I know at Cisco, you have the benefit of having access to all these yes. different resellers, but at some companies, you know, you might try to get those initial group yeah. of people that you're going to work with to resell. How do you identify them? Like, do you like go to the website and from a similar company that has resellers or how do you figure it out? How do yeah. you prospect? How do you prospect? So if I think back to Back in the days when I was prospecting uh, resellers, of course, it was not a long time ago since I'm only 21. But if I think back to the days when I was prospecting, you know, checking websites is a quick win, you uh -huh. know, of other similar types of companies and who their resellers are. And then also speaking to your customers and finding out from customers, do you have a preferred partner that you like to work with yeah. and building a picture? And a lot of the times, you know, when and, and now there's also lots of different databases, by the way, and different channel publications you can go to to buy data of what resellers sell into your market, what kinds of verticals, what are their expertise. But a lot of the times, and what I've seen work really, really well, and I learned this actually from my former boss, Pierre Atkin, who's still okay. at Meraki, okay. you know, amazing, amazing mentor, was this idea of focusing on a smaller group of partners. Uh -huh. Because as a channel rep, or when you're building a strategy, you could quite easily cast a really wide net and go mm -hmm. after dozens and dozens and dozens. But un until you have 
a proven channel motion. Mm-hmm. It's better that you start off with, you know, contacting a few resellers and, you know, investing your energy in a small group that you see a lot of potential with, figuring out what your motion is, understanding mm-hmm. the investments that you really need to make, and mm-hmm. then scaling out from there. Because although it yeah. seems simple, mm-hmm. um, partners also have expectations. They expect yeah. you to deliver training. They expect you to do, give them marketing development funds. Yeah. And until you've worked out a model that works, probably want to start really small scale. Yeah. yeah, that's very true. And speaking of mentorship, we like to deconstruct various advice and also successful mm-hmm. salespeople. So in your perspective, I know you have a team of several people who manage different accounts in yes. the Americas. What would you say are those qualities that make, make them stand out from everyone else? From the, in the US. So again, I'd like to use Rebecca as, mm-hmm. as an example. Rebecca has you know, really amazing energy and I'm a massive fan of follow-up. Yeah. Like when you have a meeting, why would you not want to follow up within yeah, 24 I mean, hours? Like if you've just, <laughs> right? Like it's all good and well to have a meeting, but you know, you should always prioritize, even if you block time in your schedule to do yeah. that follow-up, that follow-up is a difference between a successful yeah. or a failed meeting. 100%. Everyone walks out of a meeting like high five. That was yeah. awesome. Like it doesn't matter until yeah. the, the actions are That's followed up part. on. It's the hard part. <laughs> yeah. So with Rebecca, you know, we've been on a bunch of different meetings together and her follow-up is always concise. Her written communication is is really to the point. It's not like long-winded emails against yeah. a pet peeve of mine. And, you know, just a really good energy yeah. that makes people want to work with her. Yeah. And she's, you know, very tenacious. Every time I've spoken to her, even if it's a sticky situation, you know, she'll pick up the phone and she'll just call me. Yeah. So there are a few things that yeah. I think really so how, how it takes ownership of, uh, yeah. of that action item or whatever you guys are working on. Yes. And uh, to your point, a lot of people work, they spend a lot of time preparing for meetings and they get excited once the meetings go well, but it's all about follow-up. Yeah. Right. And how did that interview with Rebecca go? Like what kind of things that you look for when you were screening her versus everybody else? So Rebecca was someone that I inherited actually, because Gartner okay. did a good job of okay. hiding her. <laughs> so she was already on board when I started. But someone else that really stands out to me is someone called Arancha. She Arancha. Arancha. She's based in Mexico City. And actually the story here is super interesting because the first time around when Arancha came to interview for a channel manager role, she didn't get it. She didn't get it. And I had just started interviewing for, for folks. So she came and I loved her enthusiasm. But I thought, you know, she's an enterprise sales rep. She's got no channel experience. I don't know if I want to hire this person. Mm-hmm. So I then interviewed like 10, 15 people after that. Mm-hmm. Didn't like anybody else. And then I thought about Arancha and, and I, called her, I called her back in. And I just had a feeling like I should take a chance. Yeah. And that was one of the best decisions I've made from a hiring perspective mm-hmm. in yeah. my career. And I think one of the things that Arancha does so well is, first of all, she has this amazing energy. And you know, if you're having a bit of a crappy day, you want to be around the people that, that give you the good energy, yeah, right? Yeah. So partners are exactly the same way. If you walk onto a sales floor, the partner exec, and you light up a room, that in itself carries a lot of weight. The second thing about her is that she's so resourceful. Yeah. So she's the only person that is managing the channel in Mexico City, and I think actually in all of Latin America. Wow. So she doesn't have a lot of marketing resource. You know, she doesn't have a bunch of execs that live her that can help her with her meetings, but she always rolls up her sleeves and finds a ways to still get things done. Yeah. And it's very easy to make excuses. Oh, I don't have this resource and I don't have that resource. Mm-hmm. And you know, 
but are you going to be the type of person that hides behind all the no resource excuses? Yeah. Or are you the one that's going to step up and say, I might not have this, but mm-hmm. here's three other things that I can do instead. Exactly. And yeah. she's done such an amazing job of yeah. that. That's Turning awesome, a disadvantage into advantages, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. We talk about it a lot. Something you brought up that um, makes me think is a proven channel sales motion. Mm-hmm. Is that what it was? A proven channel motion. Mm-hmm. So what is that? Because like, you know, Sales tends to be very activity driven yes. and like people talk about like number of calls and emails and right. meetings and that's like good for high volume stuff. But yes. what's a proven channel sales motion at Dynamics and just in general for the like the VAR reseller space? Yeah. So one thing to remember is that the channel is an overlay function, right? So mm-hmm. you'll have the sales team that own, owns a number. And let's say a company saying, you know, this year we want 20% of those sales to be driven through the channel. The channel mm-hmm. will then carry 20% of the sales number. Got so it. it's an over overly number. So what ends up happening in a lot of companies, and this excluding Meraki, excluding App Dynamics, is that the channel model and the leading indicators are mm-hmm. never really truly defined mm-hmm. because through the data, they're really hard to find. Yeah. But what I love about my role here at App Dynamics and a project that we're working on, we're in the final stage, yeah. is that we're probably going to be one of the first company that really defines them. I love this. Right? Yeah. So we're going to be able to go to every single one of our channel managers and say, if you do these three things mm. with your partners, yeah. you are going to crush it. Wow. And we have that model right now on the sales side. Like yeah. on the sales side, we have it very well defined. We have leading indicators. It's one of the reasons why Apti is so successful. Yeah. And it's a huge gap that we don't have it on the channel. Yeah. But we'll be one of the first in this industry to have that. And our partners will benefit because they'll know exactly what the team is focused on. Yeah. We will be able to spot trends and potential gaps and problems way before they start to hit our numbers. And we can add a lot of predictability into our business by saying, here's a number that we need to get to and then work backwards. And these are the leading indicators and metrics that we need to hit along the way. Yeah. So what are the, do you have like any general leading indicators that like people can think about as they're trying to structure these things and get to your same level? Yes. So generally when you think about the channel, you generally think about how much is booked through the channel. So let's say we all have a company and we are selling these post-it notes and we've decided that we're going to put 50% of these through a channel business. So when you look at your numbers, you'll be like, oh, we sold 50% of our post-it notes through this this channel, this reseller. But what value did that reseller actually drive for you? Because you just booked it on their paper, right? Now, if you have metrics that can show, okay, you might have put 50% through this reseller, Mm -hmm. but in return, the reseller drove 3x of that in revenue for you. Mm. That's the part that you should really be measuring. I see. Because how much you transact through the channel, that's one metric. Yeah. But what most companies and vendors really care about is how much incremental is the channel driving for you. That's and you can sure. measure that through, you know, one very common way is through deal registrations. So okay. deal registrations are when a partner has found an opportunity and they register it on a portal somewhere. Uh And then you approve it saying, this is not not an opportunity we're working on before. So therefore, Mr. Partner or Miss Partner, you now get, you know, X amount of extra margin. And most companies sort of monitor it that way. And I'd say that should be one of the metrics that we need to all rally around so that we can truly see and show to executives, this is why you need to invest in a channel. Because while look at the incremental yeah. additional business the channel is driving for you. Yeah, yeah. And we're, we're going to talk about dashboards in a second. But you touched on something that was interesting about margin that the resellers get. Like, yeah. I know they get 
value because you're giving them the right to be able to resell your product. Yes. But, you know, what cut do they get? Or what's like, what's the best way to think about structuring like splits? Yeah. So if you're a startup or a, or a company that's developing a channel model, you've got to work out the, the financials and figure out how much can you realistically, you know, on any given sale, how much can you afford to mm-hmm. pay a reseller? And you have to build that into your model. Typically speaking, on hardware, the margins are really low. Like these days, margins are zero to single digits. On software though, um, margins are anywhere upwards of 10%, so well into double digits. Mm -hmm. If you're app D and you really care about your partners, we pay, you know, we pay 15, 20% upwards of that guaranteed on all our deals. And our deals are generally really big deals. But if you're selling software, you should be in the the double double digits. Got it. That's helpful. And so going back to like, your dashboard. I definitely yes. want to talk about like the key things that you think about on a day-to-day basis. Um, I know we've talked about like things like the sales velocity equation and like the amount of things you have to have at the top of your funnel versus yes. like close one and things like that. What does the executive dashboard look like for? So my executive dashboard has just been created yesterday by an amazing, amazing person called Mary Lehan. Shout out to and Mary Lehan. Mary Lehan. She has done such an amazing job of building this and dashboard. What, what is her role? So she is at Partner Operations okay. at App Dynamics. Oh man, I love those people. The people those, that know how to run Salesforce. Oh my gosh, she <laughs> is she is our Salesforce star. She was on maternity leave for a little while, uh-huh. and I don't know how we survived, frankly. Yeah. And people so, don't think about that early right. now, but yeah. and we had someone right. on our podcast who went from working at a factory to becoming a Salesforce admin. Yeah, and, wow. Uh, it's actually a very role. It's a role that a lot of people overlook, but they're very critical. Roles yes. within any sales team. And it pays very yes. well as well. So that, that episode coming out this week, actually. So, yeah. And my, my favorite sales ops person is Ben Reynolds. So since we're giving so many shout outs, I, yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> I like that. So what Mary's created is my dashboard that shows by partner what our uh, partner sourced business looks like. And so I can track, is this in line with what the partners have committed to us? And then I can also see for our top partners. So we have this program, which we're calling the Titan program. And the okay. Titans like are, that name. isn't it such a good name? Really good name. I came up with it. Okay, I see. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm also a marketing person. Okay. So our Titan program, it is designed for our most strategic partners. So they're the partners that, you know, have committed dollars to us. Mm-hmm. And they're the ones we are enabling. We're helping them build an app de practice. And so for the Titan partners, I can see you know, what their pipeline looks like to see if they're going to hit the amount that they've booked. I can see the leads that they're generating per partner. I can see closed one opportunities. So they're the things I look at at a high level. And those things, uh, so this is actually interesting. So would you say that their Salesforce or their CRM is connected to AppDynamics CRM when those numbers just slow in? Or someone, uh, someone... App AppDynamics enters those numbers in so your dashboard gets updated. Yeah. So these numbers, anytime an opportunity is in Salesforce and if a partner is working on it, mm-hmm. it's tagged with the partner name. So I can then, I can see an aggregate version of all that data Got on it. my dashboard. So it's, it's someone on your team who does the tagging? It's done or, automatically. Okay. Oh, wow. It's done automatically. If, if a partner submits a deal registration okay, through so, our por- portal, yeah, yeah. that's where we know cool. this was well, That's a nice little setup. She, she is yeah. a rock star. Yeah, Mary, she's <laughs> a rock star. She's figured this all out for us. Yeah. Got it. And uh, speaking of other teams or other roles that support you as a, a channel manager, can you just give our listeners a little bit of a perspective of like, what are other roles that are that you work closely with, other stakeholders mm. that you interact day to day? And what role do they do to enable you to close these deals? 
Yep. So other stakeholders, first of all, my boss, Dali, shout out to him. He is incredible. So I'd say in terms of enabling me to do my job, removing roadblocks, um, you know, inspiring me on a daily basis on why this is so important and and fundamental for our business. He does a phenomenal job of that. So he's he's probably one of the biggest stakeholders and the CRO of our organization. So that's important. Awesome. And then operations, partner operations. So Mary and and just in fact, in most organization, channel organizations, you'll have partner ops people. And Meraki, there was another lady by the name of Shelly Carberg. Um, uh-huh. Again, amazing. Yeah. And she played a fundamental role in, yeah. in growing that business yeah. too. Are sales op- operations people, are they Salesforce related people? Or is that a different role that works with Salesforce admins? It's very similar in that there's a lot of Salesforce wizardry involved. But in addition to operations, there's also a lot of analysis that has to go on looking at the data, seeing, mm-hmm. you know, which partners are selling what, what pipeline looks like, looking at leading indicators. I'm making sure that like the stuff is actually entered into Salesforce. Yes. They have all their like their own dashboards. And related to like channel managers, like what does their day-to-day look like? Like how are they tracking things on the day-to-day? Yeah. Like what, like from morning to evening? Yeah. So this is going to become part of the leading indicators, but any channel manager, their day is structured based on activities that are across four different areas. So the first area is sales engagement or sales enablement, i.e. Mm-hmm. can you get onto a sales floor or do one-on-ones with salespeople within the partner's organization? And that relationship's really important. Mm-hmm. And then can you sync those guys up with your own sales reps? Because that relationship's really important as well. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, if, if your sales rep is working on an opportunity, you want the partner sales rep to be involved in that opportunity as well. So the channel managers have to make that connection. So sales enablement, sales engagement is one. The second one is technical enablement, technical engagement, You know, i.e. do you have a group of evangelists that really talk and care about your product when you're not there? And that's particularly important to build confidence with not just customers, but internally the sales folks as yeah. well. The third one is marketing. What kind of marketing activities are you building? with the marketing folks within your resellers. Yeah. And the last one is getting, continuing to get executive sponsorship and buy-in from the executives within resellers. At the end of the day, you know, it's, it's on the channel managers to make sure that what we do, what, the work we do is relevant for their company yeah. and for where they want to go. Yeah. And making sure that they have regular check-ins, whether it's, you know, I hate the term QBRs, quarterly business yeah. reviews. Yeah. Sounds so stuffy. But do they have like a regular cadence with yeah. those execs? So any channel manager, a really good channel manager, will be able to spend their time with activities across every all four of those buckets yeah. on a weekly basis. Got it. No, that's that's super helpful. And you know, this is the enterprise, and you mentioned this a little bit with like big deals, like uh, just in general, like yeah. what kind of quotas you know do these channel managers have for themselves? It's generally multiple millions yeah. per year. That all depends on the size of your organization. Yeah. I mean, I know some companies have multiple millions per month and yeah. per quarter, but it's oh, generally wow. multiple millions. Yeah. yeah. And when it comes to resellers, what do they look for in a company that they work with? Because I can imagine a lot of startups want to get into this game, yeah. but they probably need to be a certain size to make it interesting for the reseller. So what are the things that they look for? So I think one of the things that they look for is, is this technology proven? Does it already have some good customer wins and so some like good customer market fit. Yeah, it's not yeah. a good product market, but do you have some early ones that you can talk to? Is it really worth their time investing in it? Because any new product that they mm-hmm. take through their sales teams, through the tent, there's a cost there for them. 
So, you know, first of all, you know, good customer wins and market adoption. Uh, once you've said, we know that there's a market for it. Customers are definitely buying this. We have got some wins. Then they look at what does your channel program look like? Because if they sell this for you, then are they going to make good money from it? And ultimately, that's a combination of what does it take for them to sell it? Yeah. If it takes for, you know, really specialist resource, a lot of marketing help, and it's a massive heavy lift, then are your margins going to justify what the margins that you're paying for them to make that yeah. investment? Yeah. And typically, yeah. does the reseller invest their own resources before the partnership actually turns out to be profitable? Or do you guys provide them with maybe a, like a retainer or an initial budget for them to try working with you? And if it doesn't work out, then you guys cover that risk. Yeah, that's a great question. I've seen it work both ways. A lot of the times before resellers will invest, it's smart to work with a reseller and do some tactical activities together and prove that, you know, within this partnership, it is worth both parties investing in. And then after that, you come up with a joint plan, Mm -hmm. you know, joint plan to say, right, you know, we can see that we won this customer together. We need to win another 10 customers for this to be exciting for both parties. What does it take to win another 10 customers? Well, it needs X, Y, Z things. Okay, what is the cost of these X, Y, Z things going to be? And most times a good partnership means that you split it 50-50. If you're a really good reseller and you're fantastic at negotiating, providing you're not negotiating with me, you may get something up front. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome, awesome. That was super, super helpful and insightful. And just thinking about like these huge quotas and just how it's a little bit different than typical AEs. I know with AEs, it tends to be like, 50-50 50-50 like base and commission yes. and then no cap from a commission's perspective. Mm-hmm. Is it the same with the channel manager position? And like, what are like kind of like average bases and like commissions for people in the enterprise space? Yeah. So it's similar in that there's always a split uh-huh. and the split is usually 50-50, 60-40. And then in some companies where, you know, they're much bigger deals they sometimes have a much higher base or if they're just getting started, like 80, 20. And Japan, as an example, you generally wouldn't see a 50-50 split. You generally see 80% base and 20% in the variable side. So it depends on the market. But I would say most folks on our team, they're they're 50-50. So if you're selling these multi-million dollar contracts, then do you get to keep 50% of that contract? You wish. I would be an individual contributor if that was the case. So how does that work for our listeners? So so like the 50-50 split, is that like the 50% of your quota or so? like how does that work? Yeah. So um, when I'm referring to the 50-50 split, I'm referring to your OTE. The yeah. way that's structured is it's 50% split. yeah on target earnings. So let's say your on target earnings are 150 or 200K, then half of that would be your base okay. and then half of that would be your variable. Right. Yeah. And the way that you earn money would be you will earn 100% of your OTE if you hit 100% of your number. And then, you know, most good channel organizations don't have a cap. AppD does not have a cap. I mean, you can make really, really good money as you go into those accelerators. Yeah. And so given that there isn't like a kind of entry level channel sales roller tends to not have that. And they tend to be top closers going into these positions. You know, we talk a lot about salaries in different roles. Like we know like mid-level engineers can be like 120, like 100, 120, like depending on what city you're in. Mm -hmm. Like, is there like a base? That like they tend to have like in San Francisco you know, uh, from a... I don't know. No, I don't no. think so. I mean, I, the range is so wide that yeah. I've seen. I think a lot depends on your tenure, experience, yeah. the company that you're working for. Yeah. That I don't think, unlike engineers where it's all very well documented, I don't yeah. I don't think I know Got it. Okay. what the range yeah. would be. Oh, that's yeah. helpful. That's helpful. And, uh, 
like we i think personally i learned so much from you just like in this meeting about yeah. child cells but take us back and tell us a little bit about your background where you mm. grew up and um kind of what led you into this career path yeah sure so I was born and raised in Scotland okay, uh, nice. and, and Glasgow specifically. Uh-huh. And a lot of people are like, how the heck did your family <laughs> end up in Glasgow? Uh, so it's a really, it's a really interesting story and I'd love to share it with you. So my grandfather, he was born and raised in Pakistan. Okay. And at the time, and this was in the seventies, a lot of the community was emigrating from Pakistan and, and uh-huh. going to other places like mm-hmm. Canada, US, Africa, Kenya, uh-huh. uh, UK. and you know, he knew that he wanted to be in like the British kingdom because it sounded really cool, but everyone was going to England and most people were going to like the, the big cities within England, predominant one being London. Yeah. And he was like, you know, if we all go to England, we're never going to really integrate into British society if we just follow our community and go wherever the community is going. So he was like, I want to be in the UK. I don't want to go where the rest of the Pakistani community is going. Scotland, that looks like an interesting place. Why don't we just go there? And my dad was like, you know, like we're probably going to be the only colored family there. And my grandfather was like, perfect. You got to take the road less taken. <laughs> exactly. He's like, let's go there. And hence the reason we were all, we were all uh, born and raised in Glasgow. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And so were, was your family salespeople? Like, how'd you get into the whole sales space? So my dad's always been in business uh-huh. and growing up, I actually didn't think I wanted to be in sales, to be honest. I thought that I wanted to be a TV presenter. And this was way before the apprentice stint, by the way. This was way before then. And then my first job, I ended up working at HP. And Uh it was like, it was like probably one level above like an ADR role. It was inside sales. And it was interesting because I didn't have any of the experience they were looking for. I didn't have the degree that they were looking for. They're looking for generally something tech related to computer or computer science. But I had really studied so hard for this interview. Mm -hmm. And I remember the person who hired me, Alan McIntosh, shout out to him. He's uh, based based (laughs) in Scotland. I remember him telling me that, you know, you don't have any of what we're looking for. Uh But since you've prepared so much, I'm going to give you a chance. But I want you to know that I'm taking a a risk with you. And I was like, okay, okay. (laughs) I promise I will not let... let, let, That's actually an interesting point. So we talk about preparation a lot on this podcast. So tell our listeners like what you did to prepare and then if you were giving advice to your younger self or to someone else who was preparing for a sales interview, yeah. kind of what are the bases they need to cover? Yeah. So first of all, I read HP's financial statements and their mm-hmm. reports. And honestly, like I didn't understand most of it. I was like, <laughs> I was reading and I was like, what does this word mean? What does this word mean? And then I have to physically take out a dictionary to try and understand what these They're terms are. They're usually great for reading before you go to bed because yeah. you fall asleep Knock right away. Right, exactly. Nokia. Yeah, yeah you're, you're so right. So I read that in a lot of detail and I asked my dad as well, like, what does this mean? What does that mean? And then I put in cold calls to some of the folks that already oh, worked I there. I started doing the work. Yeah. I, yeah, I started like, like just like picking up the phone and calling um, the operator uh-huh. and uh, asking them to speak to like, just like, anyone within sales and they'd put me through and then I'd start like talking to them and then I'd ask that person transfer me to the person that sat next to you and so like one day I literally spoke to 15 different people wow and so in one day in one day and and I had written down like things that I had learned from all these folks that were doing like different sales roles at HP and so if I was looking back I would have probably I don't know if I'd done if I would have done more because I did so much already But I think I would have probably just taken a moment 
to breathe yeah. <laughs> because you're so, going so fast and you, when you see something, you're like, I want to go after this mm-hmm. opportunity. And I put so much pressure on myself that I don't think I, I had to be that hard on myself. Yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the times when you're breaking into your first role in tech, it's the signals that you send off to your hiring yes. manager that actually matters. They do want to see that you have some experience and you have the enthusiasm, but I'm sure if you can tell them like, hey, I already put the initiative to yes. cold call and I, to reach out to these people and these people, and I already know things that you can just find online, that sends out a signal. So you're not just telling someone, yeah, I'm a hustler. You're like, you're showing it to them. You're showing so it to them. So in your case, yeah. how did the person hiring you find out? Did you weave it into the story or how did they find out that you spoke to all these people? I documented it. I had okay. typed it all up from yeah. like, here's everyone I spoke to. This is, this is the department that they mm-hmm. work in. And these are the things that I learned about the yeah. role that they're doing. And you know, here's like some key takeaways for yeah. me. And I remember pulling it out and the person that was interviewing me, they're like, did you, <laughs> did you really do all that? I'm like, did I not do enough? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. And That's especially because awesome. you were in your role, you would have had to. So you pretty much were doing things that you would have had to do exactly. in your role. Exactly. Except in this case, you were trying to get that job and That's close right. that deal, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But the same level of prep yeah. has to go, especially when you're breaking yep. into something. Nobody owes you anything, yep. yeah. you know? And I don't necessarily know, know if I, I believe in, in good luck or not. I've gone back and forth on this. But I think you can a lot of times create yeah. your own luck. Yeah. You know, if I wasn't as well prepared in that interview, I don't know if I would have got that shot. And honestly, HP was my lucky shot into, yeah. into tech. Yeah. And I'm sure if it wasn't HP and you did the same thing you just oh, described right. with right, right, five right. other companies, you would have definitely gotten your break. 100%. 100%. Right. 100%. Right. So, so you broke it to HP. You were in there having an amazing experience, closing hella deals. Right. And so then what happened? So then The Apprentice happened. The Apprentice. How did that happen? Like out of nowhere? Well, (laughs) again, another. You got to find follow your passion. They they started cold cold calling people. I started cold calling and be like, hey, I want to be on The Apprentice. We were watching the show. So the show was at the time on series three. Okay. Uh, So and at that point, you know, the show had had a, a pretty big following in the UK. So I was watching it with my dad and I was like oh, you know, these people don't know what they're doing. And I had like a bit of an arrogant swagger about me. You know, I can sell sand to the Arabs. I said some cliched crap like that. And my dad was like, you shouldn't say you can do something until you've actually done it. That is wise. And I was like, okay. So then I went on to um, my PC. So at that time, it wasn't like little cute little Apple Macs, little laptops. They were like big PCs in the you know, the dial up modem going. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it went, it went online and they were, they were looking for folks to apply and I took a chance and I, I applied. Yep. And honestly, I didn't think I would make it because, you know, people were at least 10 years more experienced than I was, than I was. And, you know, on top of that, I'm thinking, you know, I'm a female, I'm so young, mm-hmm. I'm Scottish, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't really know whether or not I can make it. So I worked out the mathematical probability since everyone was like, your chances are so low. Like zero point zero one percent. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So, but you broke in. I did. So you did it, and so you you were in there, and a lot of times, like people have these different perceptions about television. Yes. Uh, like, do you feel that you learned something while you're there? Like, how was it? Like, I mean, is it was it hard, or what was that like? It's tough. It's one yeah. of the most. I mean, it's it was a lot of fun, but it was tough at the same time. It was one yeah. of the most interesting experiences of my life, actually, because first of all, you you're not allowed to speak to your friends or your family the whole time you're filming you don't have your phone you don't have the internet you have no personal belongings so they create this like 
pressure cooker environment yeah. where, you know, you're competing with the same people you're working with. You're waking up in the morning and then you're having breakfast with these folks. You're having dinner, but you're still working with them. Yeah. So just in your face the whole time. Yeah. And you don't know who you can trust, who you can't trust. Yeah. But what I learned from it actually was when I watched myself back on TV and that's when I learned like, wow, like I thought at that time, you know, I could talk the talk, yeah. but what I realized was I couldn't walk the walk. Interesting. Yeah. But you got pretty far in the pre-chat. You mentioned to us that you got to like week, uh, like towards nine. the end, right? Yeah. Week yeah. nine. I wow. Did. And I, I think what was, uh, what else was interested about the pre-chat is you shared with us what you did before you quit your job. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> I think our <laughs> listeners would appreciate that because yeah. not everyone would have done that. Right. So, oh my gosh, this is what I mean about being able to uh, talk the talk. So <laughs> such an arrogant so-and-so. So what I did was- Confidence. Confidence. confidence yeah. 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 Let's, let's run with confidence. <laughs> I like that. So what I did was my manager at the time, I said to her that, listen, I am going to be leaving because I'm filming for The Apprentice. And, and The Apprentice was <laughs> supposed to be under like NDA. So you could only yeah. tell like, only a very small group of people that I'm filming for The Apprentice. And, you know, I, I'm going to have lots of job offers by the time I come back. So, you know, can you give me another job and, you know, uh, more money? And then so said, promotion. The negotiator. Like a bit of a promotion. And she was like, are you, are you asking me for a promotion whilst like resigning? And I was like, yeah, that's pretty much what I'm doing right yeah. now. And but somehow it worked because I had done a, I had done a pretty <laughs> yeah. good job before I left. They didn't want me to leave. They knew I wasn't going to come back to the same job, so I came back to a better job and more money and I relocated love, to I London. Love that. <laughs> so, that's so dope. That's so dope. And um, and um, like given that you you know you did all these things to this point and you've been so successful, and I know we're going to talk about how you got to Morocco and all that in London. You know what we talk a lot about advantages and disadvantages and perceived mm-hmm. advantages and perceived disadvantages and sometimes things that we don't realize that got us to that point was there anything that you feel that helped you develop those like skills to get to that point or even this that persistence to get to that point you know i've always been aware of the fact that i'm i'm usually the youngest within my peer group so yeah. you know what if i look back at pretty much every role that i've had I've almost always been the youngest and the least experienced. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times you can look at that and say, well, I don't have as much experience as some of my peers. Or you can use that as an opportunity to learn because you know that maybe I don't have enough experience, but that doesn't mean that I can't learn. Yeah. So because of my, my age and a lot of times I've also felt like people have treated me a little bit differently because I've been the youngest. And I don't necessarily know if it's because I'm a woman or not. I only became aware of all this bias against women and um, probably in my late 20s uh, but I'm, I'm always aware aware of my age and so if you're a young person going into a company and you know in your head that you're probably one of the youngest and you're the le- least experienced like use that to your advantage yeah. and push yourself to learn like because that. the people that are more experienced they have a little bit of a chip on the shoulder I'm mm-hmm. experienced I've been doing this stuff for 10 15 years Meanwhile, you're out there, you're learning the latest and greatest and yeah. newest and you have that, that vigor. And a lot of people that have a lot more experience don't necessarily have that. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, you landed in London, so yes. you're in London and you're surveying the landscape and uh, Meraki, you know, everybody knows about it now because yes. it got acquired for a lot of money. But like, how did you identify a company at that stage 
And like, how did you decide to like make that move? What what due diligence did you follow? So I didn't do any due diligence. Okay. Okay. So what happened was <laughs> that Meraki popped up in my LinkedIn profile. You know, you get LinkedIn feeds mm-hmm. and I'm yeah. saying Meraki hiding now. Yeah. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. What kind of company calls itself Meraki? Uh-huh. So then I clicked on the link and I was really intrigued by Meraki's look and feel of the website. It seemed like this like young, hip, very upcoming company. Yeah. And I'd never worked for a company like that ever before. And even the product, I, I was like cloud managed networking. Like, what does that mean? And then it was I watched hardware too, right? Yeah, hardware plus software. Yeah. And then I watched this video called Dave the IT Guy. It's this yeah. really cool video that Meraki made made online. And I was just like really intrigued. So I got in contact with a recruiter, and thankfully at the time, our founders were in London, and they uh-huh. had just opened up Meraki's second office. Okay. In London, the first one in London, they'd outgrown, so they moved moved into an office in Saffron Hill in London. And uh, that's when I interviewed, but I didn't interview for the role that I got. I interviewed for a management role. So I interviewed to lead the channel for Europe, Middle East and Africa. Okay. But I didn't get that job. Oh man. How'd that make you feel? I was gutted to be honest with you. I didn't get the job because the team thought that, you know, I just didn't have the management experience. And so they said to me, you know, we really want to hire you. Meraki is growing really fast. You know, why don't you join as a channel account manager, as an individual contributor? And at that point in my career, it was a step back for me because previous, prior to that, I was working for a company and I was managing a whole region. Yeah. So I thought to myself, I don't really know if I want to take a step back, you know, to having just looking after the UK and, you know, being individual contributor. But there was just something about A, Meraki's growth had been like on fire at that yeah. point. B, the people that I had met, Pete Atkin being one of them, you know, the founders, mm-hmm. um, Andy McCall, who now runs mm-hmm. sales at Samsara. Mm-hmm. And I just thought this group of people I can probably learn a ton from. Yeah. And it's a company that's growing fast. Never yeah. been at a company that grew this fast before. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, maybe there's something there. So I, I took a chance. I took yeah. a bit of a risk. Yeah. And, you know, five and a half years later, I'm now sitting here in San Francisco yeah. <laughs> at VP level. Yeah. So it just goes to show that sometimes you can take something that may seem like a step back. Yep. But if you do it the right way, you'll mm-hmm. actually be making several steps forward. It's like a slingshot. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Like, back shot. So, and then you go. Yeah. So when you were taking the step back, it wasn't just, um, it sounds like you didn't just follow your hunch. You actually looked at their growth. Yes. You mentioned you look at the founding team. Yes. You identify things that you can learn. What other things would you advise our listeners who might have a pretty comfortable jobs now, but they're maybe working for a more traditional corporate company. What things should they look for for those early stage startups if they want to switch over, especially for those that would require them to take a step back? Yeah. So I'd say before you even get into the tactical, what they should look for, if you don't wake up in the morning mm-hmm. feeling really excited about what you do, you are less likely to be successful. And I will debate that with anyone in the world. If you wake up in the morning and you're like, you know what, I am so lucky to have this job. I love what I do you're far more likely to absolutely Mm -hmm. crush it because the energy that you have with doing something that you enjoy, you don't even have to be so, like I wasn't passionate about selling access points, but I was really passionate about what Meraki was doing, which was disrupting an entire industry. So if you can't find a way to wake up in the morning and get super, super excited in your Mm -hmm. current job, that's a good time to start looking. Yeah. If you're in a corporate job and you're enjoying what you're doing and you're excited about it, fantastic continue doing what you're doing. But if you're not, mm-hmm. then consider a change in an environment. So some of the things to look for, and if you're, you know, if you're based in the Bay Area, there's so many amazing, amazing startups. 
have a look at the website. Is there something about either the product, the go-to-market, their mission that really resonates with you on mm. a personal level? Have a look at the funding, which VCs have backed them, who is the founding team, what kind of success has the founding team had in the past? Who are the people they're hiring? Who are the salespeople that are currently on board? What is their track record like? Mm -hmm. And once you start to do all that research, you generally can build a pretty good picture of whether that's a good move for you or not. Yeah. And whilst doing that research, if you're like feeling pretty pumped about it, then it's worth like picking up the phone and just going to their office and having an informal meeting yeah. um, even before like a proper interview. Yeah, yeah. No, I love I love that checklist and like what just based off of like the the what happened after that. After they got acquired, they also became like right. the fastest growing like division within Cisco, That's right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and then it continued to go and you kept managing things over there as well. Going back to like mentorship that Timo brought up earlier, while you were at Meraki, was that your manager there the one who told you about the channel motion? Yes. Yeah. So what what other like gems did you learn there that you feel that you've that have gotten you to this VP level? So one thing that Pete Atkin always he always does really well is putting things into perspective. So as you might have gathered, I'm a bit of a fiery person, you know, uh -huh. in most situations I will have an opinion. Yeah. In most situations I will really want to react. Yeah. And in channel, like sometimes you are dealing with things that maybe don't go. In fact, forget channels. In any company you're dealing with yeah. things that might not go your way. Yeah. Um, meetings that you've walked away from feeling a little bit angry. Yeah. You know, people that you've met, you're like, I'm not sure what I think of this person. Yeah, it sounds like and life. Sounds like life. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And in the moment, you always <laughs> want to react or yeah. you always want to have like a sort of knee jerk reaction. Yeah. And one of the things that, um, you know, I learned from Pete was to sort of take a step back from mm -hmm. all of that. And if you've, if you come across a situation in that moment, like don't send that email, yeah. you know, don't pick up the phone and, and do that call. If you've come across any kind of conflict, like maybe wait a day. Yeah. And sit on it. And yeah. if you really, really must go onto your keyboard and bash your keyboard, like mm -hmm. go ahead, but don't mm -hmm. send that email. Because yeah. a lot of the times that will then make the situation worse. Right. And, you know, I had a very similar conversation with um, Dali, my, my current boss, mm -hmm. on the same thing. And this is a recurring pattern in, in my life now where, and, it, and what he was saying was really interesting that, you know, try and almost control your emotional range. So mm -hmm. instead of having like, I have very high highs and then really low lows. Yeah. You know, try and maybe do some exercise in the morning, yeah. which will set you up for, for the day where you can be an even pace throughout mm -hmm. the day, as opposed to really high highs and low lows. And you're just going to get completely mentally exhausted. I love where you went with that, because I think Art is going to ask you about routines. Well, that yes. I, I also wanted to add that uh, also having people around you, like you mentioned yeah. that you've uh, been around great mentors who you could speak to, you could kind of um, share your frustrations and then they would yeah. come calm you down. So I think that's also another thing why it's important to surround yourself with people that yeah. support you because a lot of the time you might be upset or you might be just something gets in your head and if you have those people around you then they'll be able to calm you down and show you a different perspective yeah. Yeah. and just uh to our listeners so arthur rubin and i would definitely have those moments too <laughs> right uh, oh, and yeah. that fire and passion it can manifest in various ways and uh i think the biggest thing is just to make sure that no one takes it personally yes. and sometimes even between the three of us we do have like sometimes we might attack each other on a personal level, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. at, at the end of it, we're like, all right, we like cool down a little bit. And then we yes. follow up and say, Hey, like you were right. Or I was wrong. Or like you were, I guess it's usually were, me apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Not always. But, uh, but I think it's healthy. It's just, you also want to, when you're dealing with people, maybe like a reseller yes. uh, that could actually jeopardize your relationship. Right. So you kind of have to find that middle yeah. ground. Yeah. And like yes. a lot of times those, like those conflicts, 
tend to like be like what the resolution to it mm-hmm. ends up being like some of our best ideas and some right. of our best outputs. Yeah. And when I do apologize, when any of us apologizes, <laughs> it's after we've taken some time to right. reflect and yeah. realize what everybody was saying or it confirms what you were saying. And mm-hmm. so going back to the whole thing about this thinking space and the reflection space, like what is Gazal's like routine to like get into the right mindset, either as an individual contributor, or as a manager to get fired up? Because we're, we're not always on a high. Right. You know, how do you do that? So first thing that I've noticed about just my general sort of mood is that if I've gone a few days without speaking to my family, mm. um, I will I will really miss them. And I get homesick very yeah. quickly. Yeah. So I, I think you have to have a very high level of self-awareness of yeah. what your own patterns are. So that's the first thing that I yeah. try and do is, you know, once every day I will always be on WhatsApp and my, uh, we've got mm-hmm. a family group yep. and I'll communicate with my family. It just makes it feel like I'm, I'm in touch with you them. We have a group chat. A we group have a group text. chat. Yeah, yeah, we have a group nice. chat, group, group text, and I have two beautiful nieces and I'll make sure that, you know, every other day I will FaceTime them. Oh, that's beautiful. And that just, I just yeah. makes me feel like, okay, we're good. Leveraging we're good. technology. To that's it. Family. Leveraging yeah. technology to yeah. keep in contact. Yeah, Absolutely. Just in case you thought we forgot about family. <laughs> right, right. We'll never forget about family. We'll never forget about family. Yeah, so <laughs> it's <going>. true. <laughs> it's true. And so, you know, that's, that's the first thing that's like most important to me is maintaining that communication. And then the, the rest is in between travel is having a good routine. Yeah. So I will I will wake up in the morning. I've just started doing some exercise and going to the gym okay. since Dali is like texting me usually at 5 a.m. <laughs> are you at the gym yet or not? Um, so do you, because we also like to ask what time you wake up. So yes. do you wake up at 5 a.m. or what's your daily routine? When does it start? So recently I have been waking up at 5 a.m. to go good. to the gym. Uh, mm-hmm. But my usual is around 7. Yeah. My okay. usual is around 7. And I stopped checking emails and it made such a difference. Oh yeah, start your day for yourself. Right, exactly. So I stopped checking emails mm-hmm. probably about six to nine months ago in the morning, which mm-hmm. has made a huge difference mm-hmm. to the way my morning starts. So uh, I'll go to the gym. If it's been recently, then then I will, I'll come back. I'll have something very light to eat. And then I'll just usually do like a morning journal. Mm-hmm. So there's something that I picked up from Tim Ferriss, which is just writing. Okay. Love, shout, shout out to, to, yeah, shout out to, shout out to Tim Ferriss. <laughs> um, writing, you know, a page of just like mind dump. Whatever comes to your mind, you yeah. get it out. So I, I do that when I'm not traveling. When I'm, when I'm traveling, it's a little bit more difficult. And then usually, but that, usually that gets me to about 8 a.m. And at 8 a.m., I usually have calls in Europe, to yep. Europe, since they're completing mm-hmm. their day. And yeah. I usually start off my day with some or a few calls yeah. to the team out there. It's international. Yeah. I like that. Really cool. Really cool. <laughs> and yeah, uh, before we, I guess to build, build up on that, you talked a lot about enthusiasm and energy. Yeah. And um, I guess you also have a lot of confidence. Mm. Um, like when you were negotiating with your manager right before you left your old past job to go to apprentice, what do you kind of tell yourself when, when you're out of your comfort zone and you're about to take a risk? What do you tell yourself in order to kind of push through those tough times? I tell them, I literally work out what's the worst that can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I literally work out the worst case scenario That's in my good. own head. I like that. And a lot of the times, the worst case scenario, as long as it doesn't end up in death, yeah. like it's usually not that yeah. bad. Yeah. You're dying or someone else dying or some disease or like, you know, something that affects yeah, your health. That. Yeah. Usually, that, usually, as long as it's not that, yeah. you are good to go. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we talk about it a lot on the podcast too, because when people are breaking into tech, for that six to eight months, they are going to be in like this outside of their comfort zone and they're going to be hustling. They're going to see a lot of rejection, but 
if you just do this mental exercise of saying like, what's the worst that can happen? You're already living in the United States, which is a huge advantage a lot of people exactly. underestimate. And then the worst that can happen is you probably go back to the job you had before. Right. Or you got to um, interview again. Or you, or you got to retake the test. Again, you re- retake yeah. the test. You might, someone might say no to you. But like, you're not going to die like uh, yeah. unless you like do something crazy. Yeah. Um, and exactly. uh, on the other hand, there is a huge upside. Exactly. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. And so like before going into the lightning round, what was the difference of like working on channel sales and the side of a company like Meraki versus Cisco? I know you're at Cisco again, kind of. Yes. Because you were at Cisco and then Cisco again. Yes. Like, I, was at, I was at Cisco Meraki and I'm now at Cisco App Dynamics. Yeah. Um, was it different between Cisco App Dynamics versus Cisco Meraki? Yeah. It's very different because with Meraki, Meraki was acquired for within Cisco to become the cloud networking arm of Cisco and Cisco already knows how to sell networking. So we had access to a lot of the partners that already understood networking and therefore we were enabling them and helping educate them on why the cloud model and the whole idea of simplicity, which is Meraki's sort of biggest value prop. Whereas with AppDynamics, it's a much more complicated sale. It's not based on high volume. We sell high up into the enterprise. Yeah. There's not, it's not a feature or product-based sale. It's based on selling a lot of value and solution selling and yep. solving problems. And then also App Dynamics became a channel company very early on where it was majority channel before it hit 100 mil of run rate. And App Dynamics is starting in the channel after already being a pretty big company, yeah. you know, $3.7 billion acquisition. Yeah. And so it's, it's different. It's a di- very different challenge yeah. because now it's about helping AppD, the stakeholders AppD, all the additional functions in AppD understand why the channel is a, an amazing way for us to scale our business. Love it. You just mentioned some things about sales methodology that I'm going to ask you in the lightning round. So sure. me, tell me what So at this point in the podcast, we do the lightning round. Okay. And this is where the three of us will ask you questions where we're looking for actionable steps, any strategies, any advice that you have for our listeners to help them get to where you are today. Okay. So guys, take it away. Yeah. So if you move to a brand new city, imagine you just uh, kind of sold everything. You move to, move to a new city and you only have $100 to start. How would you spend that $100 to get back on your feet and get a job in tech? So the first thing I would do is I'd find the best coffee place yeah. and I'd spend $6 of that 100 starting my day with the best coffee because mm-hmm. I'm a massive coffee snob. Yeah. So many will say that's not good use of funds, but I think it's the best use of funds. Can't be falling <laughs> asleep, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then I would find the local tourist area because tourists always have money to spend on rubbish and always want to buy like silly souvenirs and stuff like that. So I would go spend a whole day in the tourist area uh-huh. and try and find something that nobody else is selling and then I'd go to alibaba.com and <laughs> find, you know, whatever it is. It might be some kind of souvenir. Selfie I would, stick. A selfie stick. Exactly. A selfie <laughs> stick. Like whatever selfie it might drone. be. Yeah. Uh, or or you know like chargers, you know, tourists or you know, sometimes they're running a battery because they're always taking pictures yeah. on phones. But I'd sell something that I can buy pretty cheap and sell at about five eggs and literally go to Ooh. the tourist area. And stand high there. High margins. I love high that. margins, exactly. High volume, high margins. Yeah. Best, best case scenario. 
and I would I would sell them. Yeah. True saleswoman. I, I, it sounds like you've done that before. I like Maybe. It. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. So You're like Alibaba, like I would uh, pre-order, ship it to my house. <laughs> and so like going going back to the thing about sales methodology, you talked about solution selling, and uh, you know there's all kinds of things. So like pain, selling for pain, and like I don't know challenger sales. So what do you think about sales methodology? Uh, for the people that don't know what is solution selling and like what books would you say uh, you've read about sales that are, or just books in general that are, mm-hmm. have made the most profound impact to your life and to your sales style? So I would say that a lot of Simon Sinek's oh, yeah. work around, you know, why, why are you selling this? Why would anyone care? And finding that sort of inner purpose to yeah. whatever you're doing. I think if you can nail that as a salesperson, you will come across more authentic and more genuine than just picking up sales philosophy. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. That's very true. So when it comes to sales, you're obviously very successful. What do you think is that one thing that most people don't know? Some people who are even in sales don't know about sales. Oh, I like that one. That don't know about sales, even the people that are in sales that yeah. don't know about sales. It could be yeah. some tactic. It could be some um, interpersonal thing. Something that you kind of carved out for yourself that most yeah. people don't realize about sales. Your secret sauce. You know, I don't know if there's a secret sauce. Mm-hmm. I really don't know if there's silver bullet or there's a secret sauce. But I would say that one of the things that I've always, always been maniacal about is follow up. Mm-hmm. You know, like. If you're on back-to-back calls, best salespeople actually build and follow-up time into their schedule to yep. make sure follow-ups mm-hmm. are done on time. Love it. And if you can nail that follow-up and do it on time, like mm-hmm. that can also be your value add because nobody does follow-ups. And if you have a meeting, you have a nice yeah. little chat, everyone goes away, everyone goes to their day-to-day work yep. and you never really, no one follows up. Yep. And then, oh, I have one. So then what I do is I find the follow-up and even if it's something that's been done, I always close the loop. I will always then send a close the loop email to say, thank you so much. Looks like all these things have been done. I'm closing the loop on this. And if you come across as someone who's following up and closing the loop, you're coming across someone who's executing hard. When you're closing the loop, do you ever kind of put some nugget of info so you can follow up later, like in three months or six months, so it can help you kind of like build up on where you left off? Do you ever do that? So I think it really depends on the email and the yeah. context, but I think it would, it would be awesome if, if folks did that. If you put mm-hmm. in, you know, a nugget or something to say that you're going to follow up again in three months to check in how things are going, then why not? Yeah, yeah. you took that follow to the next level. Yeah, like we need to have a whole a, book on follow up. Oh, absolutely. The loop, you, right? should, you should yeah. write it. We'll buy it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> so we'll distribute. We'll, we'll resell it for you. <laughs> can you be? Can you guys be my channel? <laughs> absolutely. We could put it to the podcast. Put the link on the website. The bot. The show shout, out to shout out bot. to our bot. So go. <laughs> your your sister. You have sisters. You got nieces. You got family. What advice? What one sentence piece of advice would you give them based off of everything that you've seen and accomplished so far? I'd say that, you know, we always hear this term of like, be fearless. And I don't think being fearless actually is humanly possible because we, we feel fear for a reason. It yeah. is hardwired into our, our bodies for a reason. Yeah. Um, and it usually protects us from danger. Yeah. But that feeling and emotion of fear, you know, in any given situation, feel the fear and then do it anyway, you know? Yeah. 
Like if you if you're scared of like applying for a job, raising your hand, asking this guy out on a date, like whatever it might be, asking for a promotion, yeah. picking up the phone, and you know closing a deal, yeah. um, and you'll usually feel like this feeling of you're a little bit outside of your comfort zone. You yeah. usually feel a little bit scared. My- and it's okay to acknowledge in that moment, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit scared right now because yeah. this might not work out, but what's the worst that can happen? And I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. My cousin told me that the fear of loss is a greater motivator than the anticipation of gain. Right. So right, I, right, I, love right. The, I love that statement. That yeah. That's cool. I like it. And it was yeah. shared to me by a family member. <laughs> yeah. So uh, kind of, uh, we're about to wrap up, but what's yes. next for you? Kind yeah. of, what do you see yourself in the next few years and what could our audience expect from Next you? five years. Next five years. You know, for the first time in my life, I don't have a five-year goal. I always <laughs> had like, you know, I always was like, by 30, I want to be this. And by this year, this age, I want to be that. So I, I don't know. I don't have a five-year goal. I want to continue to you know, do a really good job, serve my team here at App Dynamics, watch and see people learn and, and grow and be super, super successful. And then at some point, I would love to reach the C-suite. Now, that might not be in five years. That might be 10 years from now. But whenever it is, I want to develop myself as um, a good enough leader that is, is experienced, that has the credibility to lead an entire organization. Yeah, yeah and, I, I would absolutely work for you. And just to follow up Thank on what you, you just said, um, when it comes to developing that, those leadership skills, yeah. how do you go about doing that? A lot of it comes down to being really self-aware, believe it or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can read all the books in the world, but if you don't realize the way you speak, what you say, how you act, how it makes other people mm-hmm. feel, all the reading that you do is pointless. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I do do a lot of reading, but I also try and be as self-aware as possible. And it sounds easy, but a lot of people, that's where they really struggle. Because what we think of ourselves is yeah. one thing and what the world thinks of us is another. Yeah. You know, yeah. so developing your self-awareness by asking for feedback, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, by building enough trust with the people around you, they can be honest with you with feedback, gives you a picture of, you know, yeah. some of your areas and your blind spots and your gaps. And as a leader, being really committing to learning and growing so that you can serve your team. Yeah. yeah. And before we Absolutely. wrap up, what, what's yeah. the... What's the best way to, to stay in touch with you? And do you have any closing thoughts or questions for us? Best way to stay in contact is via Twitter. So Ghazal okay. Asif SF. Yeah, she responds quick. That's how we got in touch, right? Yes, that's right. That's right. <laughs> no, I have thoroughly enjoyed this. It's been so much fun. I have a ton of respect for the work that you guys are doing. Um, and, you know, in, in inspiring other folks through you know speaking to people like me so i i really appreciate it really appreciate the thank time you. and dialogue thank you thank you for joining great. us yeah. we'll stay in touch thanks Bye. thanks for checking us out we appreciate you for listening and always love your feedback on how we can do better if you enjoyed this let us know what you thought on the reviews by going to itunes searching for breaking into startups subscribing to our podcast and leaving a review Also, if you know someone who came from a non-traditional background and is looking to break into tech, encourage them to sign up to our newsletter or tell them to join the Breaking Into Startups community on Facebook. Remember, if they don't let you in through the front door, go through the back door, around it, under it, or through it. Let's break in.